Episode 6, The Beatles, 65. The Beatles come to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America podcast. I'm your host, Tom Gowker, along with that Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin. Today, we are talking about the first beautiful Beatle Christmas gift. It is the Beatles 65. It was released in December 15, 1964. It is a gift that will not be returned. So this is the final U.S. album released in the first year. Six of them. How is that for productivity and price gouging? Before we get into this interview, we got some housekeeping notes, and then we're going to get right into the show. I have a podcast. It's called Something Came From Baltimore, which is a music interview podcast. It's more jazz, R&B, and blues. Not really about Baltimore, but we want you to subscribe. The link is in the show notes. We want you to be a part of that Be More music scene. The Beatles guru, Brooke Halpin, is all-knowing when it comes to Beatles. He sweats that Beatles DNA. That is why I'm a fan of his. Follow him on his Facebook page, Come Together with the Beatles and Brooke Halpin. That link is in the show notes also. And and we also have a link for the Beatles Come to America. We're asking you to rank the U.S. albums the best to the worst. Try it at the beginning of this podcast run and see if it changes at the end. And I, I believe uh, it's going to be hard for you to do. It was hard for both of us. Also, this is a DIY lo-fi recording. Just be aware that we're both sitting in our underwear. And (laughs) we're both sitting in our underwear in our living rooms recording this. Mission accomplished. Now, let's get to that interview. It's The Beatles Come to America, Episode 6. It's The Beatles 65. Okay, so we're at Beatles 65. A lot of fun things to talk about. I was listening to it while I was walking. And uh, it's interesting. Great album to talk about. So... Uh, Brooke Halpin, welcome. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you once again. I always love it. Yes, we're doing the Beatles Come to America, and on on this episode, it's Beatles '65. Before I yes, it is. Before I talk any facts and figures, do you want to just give me your overall impression, or obviously, what was it like when when it came out when when you were a kid? Well, it was extremely exciting, as with every album that came out by the Beatles. It was a very exciting moment in my life. We would get it as quickly as we could as soon as the record shops had them. And then we would get on to a turntable and listen to them. And I had, you know, a rock and roll band at the time. So I have distinct memories of sitting around the turntable uh, with these little speakers and uh, listening to the songs with our guitars in hand. And we would be picking out. We played quite a bit, actually, off this album, because the songs are are not that complicated. And, of course, we'll go through them. Musically, they're not that complicated. But I'd have to say, overall, that Beatles 65 is a transition album for the Beatles. Absolutely. And I can go on to tell you why I think it is. Yeah, I agree, too. I consider it almost like their country and Western album. They were known for this big beat, like this big beat sound. They were the Beatles. They created the big beat. And then this album it is very quiet. And just doing some research, they were talking about listening to a lot of country and Western artists. 
And, yep. uh, you know, it, it definitely that influence is through it. The, the, um, it's a very American-influenced uh, album. And uh, it is simple because they have, like, one note per word and a lot of the songs. So it's, it's a lot simpler. It feels simpler. But as a whole, the album's 26 minutes long. It debuted at number 98 and went to number one. It was the, the biggest jump in, in history at that That's time. Right. It was yeah. it was number one for nine weeks. It became the biggest selling album in 1965, and in that 1965, it sold two million copies. And by the end of the decade, it was 2.5 million. Outrageous! Yeah, it's crazy. Outrageous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not that you could sell any more. It's like okay, here's more. The Beatles for Sale album came out in December 4th, so that came out overseas. But this album came out December 15th in 1964. So right. the majority of the songs are from Beatles for Sale, which is, is fine. It seems like someone cherry-picked how this works. So there's seven Beatles for Sale songs. The single, uh, I, I Feel, feel fine. fine, She's a Woman. Yeah, yeah, with the B-side of She's a Woman, and then one yeah. holdover from, from A Hard Day's Night, and that's how you get the album. That's so, right. Yeah, so that's how they, they put it together. Mm -hmm as a coherent piece and um we can go through the songs but did you have any more thoughts about that i would say tom that some of the songs are not the big beat beatles some of them but we have to acknowledge rock and roll music is a flat out rock and roll big beat sound she's a woman is rock and roll and i feel fine it's rock and roll so there's really, you know, three rockers, and even everybody's trying to be my baby. It falls into the category of rockabilly because you know Carl Perkins wrote it, and it is a rockabilly song. But the Beatles rock out on it. So this, as I say, is is a mixture transition album from the rock and roll Beatles that we knew from the previous album. Uh, as I call nothing new, while people call it something new, I call it nothing new. We talked about that. And, of course, A Hard Day's Night, aside from the instrumentals, was flat-out rock and roll, big beat. And, of course, the Beatles' second album, I think, is their best rock and roll album. So this one has a mixture of, I would call, folk rock and rock and roll. That's why I call it a transition album. This was a precursor to what they would be doing more of in 1965. And I think that the title, for the first time, as lame as it is, in very little creativity, you know, Beatles 65. In other words, okay, this, these are the Beatles in 1965. Well, it's accurate, certainly. I would guarantee you that the Beatles said, absolutely nothing to do with the titles of these albums during 1964. Nothing. Zero input. It changed, of course. When they got to Rubber Soul, that's when they said, hey, you know what? You know, let's call the album this. But prior to that, it was the record labels who came up with the title for the album. So here's another example. Now, the cover is interesting. It's, it's, it's what it is. It's the Beatles' four seasons. The cover is winter, the Beatles in the winter setting with their umbrellas. 
Then they've got spring dressed up, you know, someone's holding an actual spring. Then they're kind of like on the beach for summer, and then they're, they're actually brushing up or, or brooming up, I should say, leaves for autumn. Now, what do the four seasons have to do with Beatles 65 and the songs on this album? Absolutely nothing. This is an arbitrary, arbitrary things. You know, Robert Whitaker took the photograph, and it's a nice photo. It's certainly better than that stupid, um, what's that album called? Um, Nothing New, uh, that cover. <laughs> but at least it's an interesting um, photo of the Beatles. But it has no relationship whatsoever to the songs on the album. It's definitely better than even the second album. Uh, the second album was just like snippets of pictures and stuff. So. Oh, I love the, I love the I love the photos on the second album because it's a live. The photos are on the second album are mostly of them performing live, mm -hmm. and the second album is filled with live energy. Not only the back, uh, not only the front cover, but the back cover as well. The back cover on this one, there's no photographs, so you know it's all text. Okay, well, let's get into this album. Okay, so the first song is No Reply, which is a John song, which I think is pretty awesome. He uh, said he was using The Rays, uh, a song called Silhouette from 1957 as a reference. The first story song where he feels he had a beginning, middle, and end. It has a, a bossa nova vibe in the verse, and Chris Holman of The Birds said that there's no uh, rock blueprint for this. Like the the way that they were playing the chords of the song doesn't really match up to anything that, that um, has happened in the past. I love the harmonies. I find this is a, a, a thumb, big thumbs up for me. Great song. Only John could write these lyrics again. The song is really about jealousy. It's exactly the lyrics are about jealousy. And John's doing a double track vocal. And it's great. The chorus is powerful. No reply. No reply. What an incredible chorus on this song. No reply. The chords in the verse are standard. There's nothing new, really, with the chords uh, in this song. Uh, I think perhaps the most exciting thing musically is, is what I just uh, kind of sang for you, is the uh, chorus of no reply. And the bridge, if I were you, I'd realize a lot. And now that's pretty threatening. If I were you, I'd realize that I love you more than any other guy. And see, John is the only one who could write lyrics like that. He's telling this girl, you know, you better watch out. I'm telling you, baby, you know. If I were you, I'd realize a lot, you know. I'm loving you more than any other guy. So, I love it. I mean, it's a great song. Um, again, it's a transition piece. Yeah, it's kind of a bossa nova, 
during the verse, but the, the, but the bridge is total rock and roll, and the chorus is rock and roll. I would have been happy if this song was a single. I, I felt that this is a, a single-worthy um, song that was skipped over. Uh, well, okay. You know, if it was a single, I'm sure we all would have bought it. <laughs> I'm sure we would have, yeah. But, of course, at that time, you know, we were listening to She's a Woman and I Feel Fine because, if I recall correctly, they came out, um, I think they came out uh, late 64. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so they, they, came they were out, the current like, hits. They came, they came out, yeah, at that time. So we were all grooving on I Feel Fine and She's a Woman because they were in the record shops in, in late uh, November 1964. So, and... To be honest with you, as I always am, mm-hmm. I mean, if I had a choice between, you know, if I was working at Capitol or if I was Brian Epstein or George Martin and we're having a meeting about, well, what should be the next single? Should we release No Reply or should the single be I Feel Fine and She's a Woman? <laughs> no competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they made, the, they made the absolute right choice. Absolutely, because I feel fine. I mean, it's really, it wasn't called a double A-side, but it really is. You know, I feel fine as the A-side, and she's a woman as a B-side? Are you kidding me? I mean, she's a woman could have easily been the Mm A-side. So both of those songs are powerful and strong A-sides, in my opinion. We'll get to those a little later on. So, believe it or not, I'm a Loser was considered a single. It was something that John wanted to put out as a single, and they obviously did not want that to be a single. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. They were listening to a lot of uh, Buck Owens and George Jones, and all those songs they felt were sad. So, they all have that kind of sadness attached to them. And um, that's kind of what this song uh, is about. I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty intense song. I I couldn't see it as a a single. It it should not have been a single. I don't think it would have been a single. Yes, again, if they released it as a single, everybody would have gone out and bought it. But it just doesn't stand up to. I feel fine, and she's a woman. Now, this song is the first time that John, you can actually hear very very clearly. Dylan's influence on John as a songwriter and as a lyricist. But here's the thing that is absolutely amazing. John is saying, I'm a loser. And he says it again. I'm a loser. And I'm not what I appear to be. Now, in 1964, who in the world thought that John Lennon and the Beatles were losers. Nobody. Nobody. Because they were on top of the world. They were the kings of pop and rock. So it was actually a very honest lyric. John was being very clearly honest with us and open. But we didn't get it. We didn't think it was about him. It couldn't be about John Lennon. He must be saying that someone else who he met or a friend or someone was the loser. You know. But 
he was actually saying that he's not what he appeared to be. Incredible lyric. I love the song. And one of the things that is fascinating is that on the chorus, listen to that bass playing that Mr. McCartney's doing. He's playing a what they call a walking bass line, Tom. I'm a loser, and I love someone who's near to me. I'm a loser, and I'm not what I appear to be. You know, incredible. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great bass line. It's perfect for the chorus. It was a new, new kind of bass line. It was a very active bass line. Uh, McCartney, of course, is probably, if not the best, one of the best bass players in, in the world. Uh, I should also mention Jack Bruce. Of course, Jack Bruce with the train was phenomenal and a couple of brothers. But anyhow, uh, back to I'm a Loser. Uh, I love it. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't a single. It's an incredible album track. And, of course, John is doing great on the harmonica. But, again harmonica on a song that he wrote that was influenced by Bob Dylan, it's pretty much. Of course, he's going to play his harmonica on a song that was influenced by Bob Dylan. So I love it. Yeah. We're just so happy that we're having Beatles songs. We have no clue as to what what's inside of his head. So it's interesting. It continues through the whole Beatle career, and we, you know, we're oblivious to it until it gets a little later. That's really true. Because at the time, no one really knew that he was actually being honest. He says at the first beginning of the first verse, what have I done to deserve such a fate? What? What is wrong with the fate that you have? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're the king of rock and roll. And he's, he's asking the question, what have I done you know, to be where I am in my life? Incredible. But no one, again, no one knew what he was, that he was actually talking about himself. The third song on the album is Babies in Black and I'm Feeling Blue. Uh, tell me, oh, what can I do? It's um, John and Paul were on a shared mic. Um, the It was recorded in August 11th, 1964. Very uh, country influenced. Um, it's a, um, a very dark song uh, compared to all the songs that they've created uh, beforehand. Um, I, I love this. I know that there's, um, there's people who are considered goth. There's two songs. Um, uh, yes, it is. And babies in black are the two gothic songs of the Beatles where that, that they, they, um, attract to the dark overtones to the song. Um, I think that it's pretty interesting, but I love this song. Um, we're three in a row with really great songs. What's your thought on this song too? What can I do? Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? Very unusual. Here's a couple of things that make it unusual. Number one, it's in 3-4 time, which is a, it's a, it's a waltz. One, two, three. One, two, three. Baby's in black. One, two, three. So that straight away. It's like, well, what the hell is that? Because most of their songs up until that point in time were 4-4. Four, four. Most of them were, if not all of them. So that was an unusual sound in terms of using a different time signature, a waltz, 
you know, for a rock and roll band was very strange. Now, the guitar picking, as you mentioned, is country influence, but it's also, again, you know, George, more than John, loved the country music, some of the country artists, but he loved rockabilly more than country, I'd say. Yeah, there's a fine line between country and rockabilly, and of course, Ringo loved country too. George's guitar playing on I'm a Loser, which we just talked about, is very, very rockabilly. Uh, kind of country-ish, and it's the same kind of thing, except in Babies in Black, to go along with the darkness, as you said, he's playing on the low strings of the guitar. You know, that's really, the lower you go, you know, it's dark, it's not bright. And when you climb up on the neck of the guitar, you know, the, the sounds and the notes of the guitar are brighter sounding. So, very appropriate. In other words, they're actually working off the lyric black and appropriating that to the guitar riff. Brilliant. Very brilliant. Now, I don't know, if, again, if they were conscious of that, if they just happened, they just happened naturally. I don't know. But it's, it's, it works perfectly with the song. Now, he thinks of him and so she dresses in black and though he What is this song about? Who's the baby who's in black? It's Astrid. Stu Sutcliffe's girlfriend. Stu had died when the Beatles went back to Hamburg in 62. And they found out that Stu had died of a brain hemorrhage. And... Oh, dear, what can I do? Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? Do He'll never come back. Oh, she's dressed in black and he'll never come back. She thinks of him, and so she dresses in black. It's about Astrid. To me, it's very, very clear, lyrically. That was the inspiration for those lyrics. Brooke, that is why you're the Beatle guru, because I've never made that connection before, but it seems like it would be dead on. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that acknowledgement. <laughs> okay, we're at the fourth song, which is a Chuck Berry song, rock and roll music. Uh, Chuck made it a big, big hit in 1957. Uh, the Beatles played it you know, in their live shows for forever. Um, it was a single by the Beach Boys in 1976, it was released as a Beatles single, but not in America. It was number one in Finland, Norway, Sweden, Australia. It was number two in Germany and Netherlands. Number three in Belgium. Um, it was done in one take, which is crazy. They knew that song so well. And, yeah. and uh, as a kid in the 70s, this song was played like a regular hit. So it was on a regular rotation of, like, say, the oldies of FM. So the Beatles version was very familiar to people who lived in the in the that time period, the seventies. Um, I felt when they did the rock and roll album, this should have been released as a single. I think the rock and roll album came out in nineteen seventy five, which would have beat the Beach Boys, but it did not come out. But uh, it was a regular reoccurring song on on rotation. That's very very popular for a Beatles song. Well, as you said. They played this forever. They loved it. They loved Chuck Berry. And they had played it so often that, as you had said, 
They did it in one take. Great. Now, John's vocals is fantastic. I think he's, he's perfect to sing the rock and roll song. Could Paul have sung it? Yeah, sure. But John does a great vocal. So you don't really need McCarthy singing uh, rock and roll music. However, every time I hear this song, I hear Paul harmonizing with John on the verses. Constantly, I get the harmony in my head. I can't get it out of my head. Every time I listen to it, but that's just me. But yeah, it's a great song, and we got George Martin on the piano playing some rock and roll. It's really interesting, rock and roll piano. And George Martin, come on, he's the antithesis of a rock and roll musician. He's a classically trained oboe player. And here he is, just rocking it out. You know, almost like Jerry Lee Lewis, which is really amazing. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. I think a lot of people who heard the rock and roll music thought that that was a Beatles creation. That's another uh, generation gap where people go, oh, that's a Beatles song. They had no idea Chuck Berry recorded it. But if you compare it, it's very, very similar to the original. Yeah. Well, even even us kids, you know, back in the 60s when we heard it, we didn't say, oh, there's the Beatles doing Chuck Berry. No, we didn't think that. So, oh, here's the Beatles with a song called Rock and Roll Music. You know, even though it said on the back of the album, you know, the credits, you could see Chuck, Chuck Berry. Uh, we may have seen it, you know, we may have uh, acknowledged it, but... It was the Beatles doing rock and roll music. We didn't take a, a keen focus as much as we should have to acknowledge writers other than Lennon and McCartney and Harrison and to a lesser extent Starr. That's kind of one of the things that I have like a, a criticism about this album is that I love the Beatles. I want to hear them do really uh, original things. I don't want them to do mm. covers. At this point... Mm. I'm like, uh, I, I can skip over some of the covers as opposed to uh, hear them do original and interesting things. Uh, the fifth song is I'll Follow the Sun, which is, was written by Paul when he was 16 years old. It's only one minute and 49 seconds. And Ringo uh, it plays his knees. He plays um, a cardboard box. It's a beautiful, simple song. And... Um, it's one of those classics that basically if you're a fan, you know, and I think when Paul does this live now, he just repeats the whole song all over again because it's so short. It's such a short little song, you know, I just want to keep going, keep going. So don't you know that tomorrow So what's your thought about I'll Follow the Sun? Yeah, it's amazing that Paul wrote this in 1958 when he was, I think, 16 years old, 16 or 17, somewhere around there. And there's no drums, as you mentioned. It's Ringo tapping on something. 
very innovative. Again, who the hell was drummer tapping on a box or some people say he's tapping on a guitar case is what I've heard as well. And so very innovative for a very simple, beautiful melody, a melody that Paul can only come up with. And harmony between Paul and John is absolutely perfect to blend. And everybody loves this song. I love this song. I always will. I'm glad it's on the album. And this song is certainly a folk rock song. Absolutely, it's folk rock. So this is an indication of where we're going. Okay? We're getting, this is a song that's close to what's happening on Rubber Soul. This is the precursor. All right, we're at number six. It's Mr. Moonlight. Uh, it is a cover from Roy Lee Johnson, and uh, that song was released in 1962. I have to admit, this is a no for me. Um, I'm not loving this song. I love the I love the original. I listened to the original multiple times before and this one it doesn't is as pale in comparison now let me ask you a question now that you have declared that yes go ahead <laughs> john's opening lead vocal does not impress you Mr. i don't like it i don't like the song it never you song. don't you don't you don't like john's opening lead vocal this is a skip well, no i respect i mean i hold it Let's back up. When you don't like the Beatles stuff, it doesn't mean you don't like the like the Beatles doing it. It's just it's not something you're totally into. It's skippable. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, John's opening lead vocals for me is outrageously powerful. I mean, he is howling like a cat. I love it. And the thing I do like about this song is it's a different feel. And you know, McCartney is playing this organ solo is playing the organ along and of course he did the bass as well it's a new sound this is a new sound for the beatles and again as you had said earlier it's so unlike what we heard before on the previous albums and again this is the precursor that's why i keep saying that beatles 65 was the transition album and this song with the beatles doing a cover of mr moonlight is another great example of the transition that they were in when they recorded this song and they made Beatles 65. Okay, so what you're saying, the part that you're talking about is where he goes, Mr. Moonlight, like that when he screams that part, is that what you're saying? Like, do, am beginning, I impressed by yeah. that? It's, it's, yeah. it, it's definitely yeah. sets the song. I think it's a drone. There's, Here I am on my knees, begging if you please. I, yeah. I, I don't know, it doesn't work for me, but... Um, you're going to hate me on the next one because I'm, I'm not a big fan of Honey Don't either. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, I know. Oh. I know. Hey, it's oh. good to have opinions, right? <laughs> oh, well, of yeah. course. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Yeah, Honey Don't, uh, I could pass on. I like the original better. It's a, it's a uh, the B-side, believe it or not, Carl Perkins from Blue Suede yeah. Shoe. How about that yeah. for a double song? You know, uh, Honey Don't and Blue Suede Shoe.
It seemed that Honey Don't has more legs than it because the Beatles made it a bigger hit. Uh, Honey Don't has been used multiple times for rockabilly bands and, and uh, is in a lot of movies. Um, th this is a, a classic song that they would sing live uh, when they recorded. Uh, normally when they did it live, John was uh, the singer, but for the album they flipped it and Ringo did the, the, this song. Um, I like the original. Um, what is George playing? What, what kind of guitar does he play basically through this whole album? It's, um, well, Rick, he uses the, the Gretsch Tennessean. Okay. It's called the Tennessean, Gretsch Tennessean model. So he's using that basically throughout the whole album. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what's interesting, again, in terms of the evolution of the sound of the Beatles and the songwriting of the Beatles, okay? Our Day's Night, Something New, and let's see, yeah, those two albums showcased the 12-string Reckenbacher sound that George was playing. That was kind of like the foundation of a lot of the songs from A Hard Day's Night and Something New. That song, that sound is gone because he's using a different guitar. Simply by using a new guitar, which he never used before on the record, it gives the songs a new sound as well, in addition to the new writing material of Lennon and McCartney. That needs to be pointed out. That's very important. Is that they're changing and the evolution of the use of instruments, as well as the evolution of the actual songwriting. Now, it's another rockabilly. This is totally rockabilly. And it's perfect for George, because George loved Carl Perkins. I mean, that more than, more than the others. They all loved Carl, but especially George. So George plays the hell out of it, you know. I think he does an incredible job on the guitar. And Ringo does a great lead vocal. The sound of the song, the way it's produced, is absolutely perfect. And I think one of the reasons why Ringo sings it on the record and not John is because, as we know, the Beatles liked to give Ringo one song for him to sing per album. So this was the one. If I, okay, out of all the songs on this album, you know, we're going to have Ringo do Honey Doubt. And to this very day, as you probably know, Ringo sings it in concerts. He always he loves it, and he's identified with this song so much. Number two is one holdback from a Hard Day's Night album. It's yeah. I'll Be Back, and yeah. it didn't make it to the album because it was too moody and, and not not upbeat, like the a Hard Day's Night, the whole album. Um, right. I love this song. I think it's a, like a perfect song. If you break my heart, I'll go, but I'll be back again. I love the guitar. I love the harmony. Um, they were thinking about Del Shannon's Runaway. As I walk along, I wonder what went wrong with There's a flamingo-style guitar going on in the back. It took 16 
takes. They said it just was a little too dark for the Hard Day's Night movie. But, uh, you know, it's the only holdback from, from that time period. So it fits on this album. Uh, I think it's a good song. It's an incredible song. I think it's at the time. Again, this is folk rock. Absolutely. The Beatles are doing a folk rock recording in 1964. Before the term even existed, they were doing folk rock. And this is a great example again, of where they were headed in the folk rock category. The music is fascinating. There's a guitar riff. The guitar riff is the same. It repeats. But what's fascinating is that they play the guitar riff and there's an A minor a minor chord. Then the guitar riff repeats, and now the minor chord becomes a major chord. So it's going back and forth between an A minor chord and an A major chord. That's called a parallel modulation, for anyone who might want to know that. Now you know that's something else you could say at some of your cocktail parties down out there in Baltimore. I can't wait. Want to know about it? <laughs> Who's going to know about a parallel modulation? That's uh, you know that's quite uh, quite heavy, but that's what's going on, and it's the guitar riff that ties the two chords, the minor chord and the major chord together. And as you mentioned about, there's this rhythm going on against it, and, and what it is, it's John playing this triplet figure because it's a four-four. <laughs> and then you have this. John, 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 swish, 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 which are called triplets. And it's very unusual. When you hear that, it, it's almost creating friction rhythmically against the 4-4 four, four time. And I guess you could say, because, you know, he's saying, if you break my heart, I'll go, but I'll be back again. I don't want to go. Uh, I hate to leave you. But he says, I'm going to go, but that's okay, because I'll be back. So the lyrics are very confusing. This is about a very confused guy. Let's face it here. You know, he wants to go. He doesn't want to go. I, I hate to leave you, but I'm going to go, but I'll be back. <laughs> and you put that all together. That's a lot of conflict. So the triplet guitar, rhythm guitar, against the 4-4 time is perfect to parallel the conflicting lyrics. Brilliant. Oh, you, if you break my heart, I'll go, but I'll be back again. Yeah, I would say that this is one of those uh, epic classics that um, that I would put in the category of like this is a brilliant song, just a beautifully brilliant song, not a single, but um, it's just done extremely well. I have to agree with you, Tom. Yeah, I, I now when the Beatles meet the Beatles album came out, they had. On the back of it, it says, lead vocal by Paul, lead vocal by John. 
So, you know, we weren't really sure who these people were. We saw the pictures and then identified the sound of the voice to yeah. whoever it was and went, oh, that's John. Oh, that's Paul. Right. She's a woman came out and I was like, who the hell is this person? It's a whole different voice. Uh, I've never heard Paul sing like this. And I was like, who is this? It was him imitating Little Richard. It, it's I love it. It's a B-side of I Feel Fine. He was imitating Little Richard. It was number one in New Zealand. It was the first song ever to go over three minutes for the Beatles. It clocked in at 3.03. In America, it hit number four. It was the last song to hit the top 10 of 1964. So that was 11 songs that hit the top 10. And it was a record up until Drake broke it in uh, 2018. Well, Tom, you should have called me up back in 64. I would have said you straight. Now, yes, he's singing like Little Richard in this. But we heard him sing like Little Richard when he sang Long Tall Sally before they did She's a Woman. So vocally, in terms of the style, it's not that different. It's just that with She's a Woman, you know, McCartney wrote She's a Woman, and the arrangement is so unlike Long Tall Sally. You know, Long Tall Sally is a straight-out you know, rock and roll song, you know, three-chord rock and roll song. This uh, this song musically is, to me, is one of the greatest sounding songs because you have the guitars punching out the second and fourth beats. great sound. It was a new sound at the time. Again, another example of the evolution of the Beatles as songwriters. I always, always love this song, and I always will. She's a woman. Absolutely. And George Martin, once again, is noodling on the piano. The part that, that's really cool about Paul's voice is that he's able to do so many different things to it. And that shred voice, the part where I'm like, how does he do that without hurting his voice? This is the first song where I'm like, I know he's imitating Little Richard before, and he does a great job, but this is like a whole different sound. You're like, how does he not hurt his voice doing that version? It's just like another tool in his toolbox that mm. is pretty amazing. As a vocalist, I mean, for God's sake, here he is singing and shredding, like you say, on She's a Woman. This is the same guy who sang the tender, mellow, and I love her. It's the same vocalist. His range as a vocalist, back then, you know, now, of course, nowadays, you know, he doesn't have the voice he had back then. None of us do. But, yeah, his range as a vocalist was, was just mind-boggling. He had more of a variety of vocal styles uh, than John did. Although, you know, John could sing If I Fell, beautiful, warm, tender. And then, of course, we get into 
a song like Julia, you know, Julia is so warm, it's soft. And then here's the same singer who would turn around and sing rock and roll music by Chuck Berry. So they both had pretty damn good ranges. Uh, so it's, it is something that was part of the Beatles sound, which made it, let's just say, we were not getting bored with their vocals. It was nothing monotonous about the Beatles, including John and Paul's vocal style, because there was more than one way for them to sing a song. And they were real focused on not sounding similar. They made a comment, Paul did, about the Supremes are great, but they keep on sounding like the Supremes. And we wanted to change up our sound so we don't become monotonous. And so that was something they were very concerned with. And I think the country influenced along with the fact that their desire, you know, to to be a sponge and just take everything in and, and, and just beatalize it is... Uh, you know, prevalent. You're right. John's voice is amazing too. I, I never meant to compare the two. I'm just saying that this "She's a Woman" song just kind of blew me away. I was like, "Oh wow, yeah. this is pretty awesome," and I'm I'm glad to hear it. Uh, the hit off of this album is "I Feel Fine," which is the first use of feedback. They're basically saying yeah. in, in a pop song. was uh, John wrote this and he was working on eight days a week but he was loving the rift from watch your step from uh, Bobby right. Parker right. it's very very right. similar and they were kind of playing around with the drums from Char uh, Ray Charles uh, what I say And between the two, it's a very current kind of sound, still very beatly. It was number one for five weeks. And the progression, you know, you just got off a Hard Day's Night, and then bang, this is the next single that's not attached to the Hard Day's Night project. This song rocks, and it's a really cool song. Yes, and this is a good example of the Beatles loving discovery, the act of discovering things that were unexpected. The feedback was an accident. And they, they didn't plan on saying, oh, why don't we start the song with some feedback? You know, it's a great idea. No, they didn't do that. You know, Paul had his, his bass. John had his Gibson guitar, which was acoustic, leaning against an amplifier. And Paul had plucked the, the string, I think the uh, A string, on his bass. And... That created the feedback to occur that made John's guitar start howling. And they were like, what's that? You know, well, what's that? And they realized it was feedback going on, and they loved it. And then they said to George Martin, hey, can we use that? Can you put it in the song? And, you know, they were able to put it in at the very beginning of the song. Which, again, is complete, total creative innovation. You know, no one had started the song in 1964 with feedback. 
It was amazing. So immediately it got your attention. And again, new evolving sounds from the Beatles. I feel fine. Incredible. And as you say, Ringo is playing the same kind of rhythm that Ray Charles Strummer used on what I'd say. Combination is is brilliant. And the way it breaks down and then, you know, John is playing the guitar riff and then George comes in and doubles it. Uh, it, it's in the, it's a great rock and roll song, and that's why it was number one for five weeks. Our last song is "Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby." It's uh, originally recorded in 1957. It says that uh, it was recorded in October 18, 1964, and Harrison's voice was heavily processed with the Steed effect. Uh, this is a song that they played live for years, so it was yes. it was a slam dunk that they would record this. Uh, with really zero effort, I like this song. It's it's uh, it's in my like category. It's not a love. Yeah, the effect on George's vocal is really it's an echo delay. That's what it is. Well, they took some honey from a tree, dressed it up, and they called it me. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Well, they took some honey from a tree. Bist it up and then call it me. You know, sort of a, almost like a vibration to it because of the, the uh, echo delays, the delay that makes it, uh, gives it that pulsating effect. And it's perfect for George, as I said. He, more than the other three Beatles, absolutely loved Carl Perkins. And he plays the hell out of it again on his, uh, on his scratch guitar. And as you said, it was one of the songs that George would, would showcase during their live shows. Uh, it's interesting that the album would close out with a you know rockabilly sound. It's not folk rock. It's definitely rockabilly. It rocks more than it is folky, that's for sure. And it's just interesting you know, when you look at the sequencing of the songs. You know, you start off with no reply which we talked about as more of a rock and pop song. And then we end it with a rockabilly. And, of course, we have two rockabillies on this song, which, again, is close to folk rock. Honey Down, and, of course, both by the same writers, Carl Perkins. And that's interesting that they would use the same writer doing two covers by the same writer, Carl Perkins. Yeah, Carl Perkins must have been loving these guys. They were definitely giving him some extra bank that he wasn't having. But, yeah, you're right. Even uh, this song is the final song on Beatles for Sale. So uh, it's the way it ends it. I just feel that this is something they do in their sleep. Like, they just knock this out. It it feels like it's a great bar song. It sounds like something they could do. So their their live repertoire was was really vast, and they just picked this song out, I think, because... Probably George loves it so much, and the fact that they know it inside and out, they had to play it every night, probably multiple times. So, I would change the sequencing on the track listing, um, and I would do this: I would keep side one as it is, but on side two, I would go honey down, followed by I'll be back. Then I would do. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Then she's a woman and I feel fine. So you end the album big. You end it big 
you know, with Ifield Line. That's what I would have done. But no one called me up, you know, no one asked me, so anyhow. <laughs> uh, this sold 2 million copies. Uh, it was the number one album of 1965. America yeah. loves it. I can't say I I don't love it as a whole. I'll play this album. I dig this album. I think it's a it's a cool uh, album. And, and we're talking about it. I looked at it. I'm like, well, what is what is different about it? And it is that it's the it's removing the big rock songs and giving you some some uh, country and western giving you some new variations of, of uh, playing, slowing things down a little, and, and they kill it. So it's awesome. What's next? What's coming up next? Beatles 6. Yep, Beatles 6. Yep, all Beatles 6. Yep. Yeah, and already we've got some problems straight away with the title. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that later. <laughs> uh -huh. Capital. Capital didn't, yeah. didn't Capital do Capital again, yeah. yeah. They didn't do justice to anything. All right, so we... Uh, we are going to do Beatles 6. Uh, we have the Beatle guru, uh, Brooke Halpin, here. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. All right. So uh, that was easy and fun. It's a good album to talk about. Uh, I, I can't wait to hit the next one and, and see what's going on. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Next episode, The Beatles 6. Now, and enjoy a original Brooke Halpin composition, Nothing Ever Will. Nothing takes me down Nothing holds me back Nothing gets in my way Or blocks me on my path Nothing can't be done Nothing limits me Nothing stops me reaching my goal There is nothing I can achieve Nothing is beyond me Nothing is too far Nothing ever will stop me Nothing do I fear Nothing do I doubt Nothing makes me weak Nothing can knock me out Nothing steals my hope Nothing drowns my fire Nothing stops my drive Nothing ever ends my desire Nothing is beyond me
times when life can be a hopeless road of broken dreams. Nothing ever will, nothing ever will, nothing ever will. episode.